Hi there, I'm David Culver, Vice President of US Government Relations at Canopy Growth, once again joining you from Washington, DC. Welcome back to this episode of Under the Canopy. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by my good friend, John Walsh, who is the current Director for Drug Policy and the Andes at the Washington Office on Latin America. In his work at WOLA, John focuses on the need to reassess drug policy goals on the global scale, and has worked extensively on the need to reform international drug treaties as they concern cannabis. John has co-authored important reports, including Cannabis Regulation and the UN Drug Treaties, Strategies for Reform, and Marijuana Legalization is an Opportunity to Modernize International Drug Treaties, arguing that continued legislative progress in the Americas is key to modernizing the global drug control regime. There is no question that his work has contributed to the expansion of the international drug policy reform debate. His efforts have been instrumental in convening reform advocates and practitioners from across the globe to discuss and design modern cannabis reform and legalization. I hope you enjoy our insightful discussion. Thanks again for joining us today, Under the Canopy. Hi, John. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Under the Canopy. It's great to be with you today. Hi, David. Thanks. My pleasure. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, good to have you with us. Uh, so many, many topics to cover with you today. Uh, I want to primarily get into uh, last week's vote uh, at the United Nations, but it was such an incredibly historic week last week on so many fronts uh, in, in Washington, D.C., and I'm excited to talk about all of that as well. Um, but before we get into um, many of the topics that I'd like to touch on today, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you've gotten involved with uh, cannabis policy? Great, thanks. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm the Director for Drug Policy in the Andes at the Washington Office on Latin America, better known as WOLA, um, and we're a human rights and social justice nonprofit. Um, the drug war, drug policy has been a big part of our work for decades now. Um, and I got into this originally when I, after college, I, I lived in Peru as a volunteer for a year. And this was Reagan administration ramping up the war on drugs and trying to eradicate the US cocaine problem by eradicating coca bushes in Peru. And it struck me as nonsensical and probably gonna come to no good end. So that really got me um, engaged on drug policy issues. And when I came back to, to to the US and to DC, I started working at WOLA. Um, and that's, that anti-drug war work has been sort of the mainstay of WOLA's work in the region for decades, like I say, with some important victories. Um, and in terms of cannabis, what really picked up our work um, what was the US ballot initiatives, um, especially Colorado and Washington in 2012, um, but also our work in Latin America where we documented prison overload because of drug laws, especially because of cannabis. So at the same time, our work was expanding on proposing decriminalization of cannabis as a way to declog the Latin American prison system that the US reforms started taking off. Um, so we worked closely with Uruguay as it debated its law, which became the world's first to legally regulate adult use as well as medical at the same time, but Uruguay was the pioneer in terms of the adult use regulation. And we've been 
quite involved um, ever since, both in terms of domestic policy reforms going on, but also in terms of the international level. Yeah, good. Well, you're a very important reformer, and uh, I can thank you on behalf of my company and all of us in the space for all the great work that you do. Um, so let's turn to the United Nations, John. Uh, this is an area that you and I have worked on together for some time now. It's the culmination of a, a multi-year effort to get uh, to the point that we, we were last week. Um, but can you talk us through a little bit the process and uh, how things were looking as we led up to the vote last week? Sure. Um, and it definitely was multi-year. It was even longer than most people appreciate. This was really, I would say, six decades in the making because the critical review that the WHO did of cannabis and its place in the treaties um, was never done before. Um, cannabis was placed in the 1961 single convention um, 60 years ago based on nothing that would conform to modern ideas of science. It was more colonialist, paternalist, racist attitudes about the plant and its role in society. And that has stuck with us. So this was the first critical review undertaken by the WHO pursuant to its treaty mandate in those six decades. And this particular review was really triggered almost 10 years ago um, and finally led up to a pre-review then the WHO coming out with its recommendations. At the beginning of 2019, the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, which is the UN drug policy making body, was supposed to vote on those recommendations in March, 2019. But they found them much too complicated and asked for a reprieve, um, which they got um, to the end of that year. And then they asked for another um, extension. So finally, we ended up voting, we did C&D, member states of which there are 53, including the United States, ended up voting on those recommendations just last week. So almost fully two years after the WHO initially made the recommendations. Yeah, good. Well, it has been a very complicated process and I know it's something I've been focused on since I've been in this job, which is almost exactly two years. Um, but you mentioned the United States, we're both here in DC. Can you talk a little bit about the, uh, the US involvement in these deliberations over the last couple of years? And, I'm also curious too, John, just to add on to that question, there's been so much discussion about the classification of cannabis here on Capitol Hill and within the administration. Did that play into the discussion at all um, at the United Nations? I think it did in, in two but very distinct ways. First, the US um, has always been active on, on issues before the Commission on Narcotic Drugs. In particular, the US was really one of the chief architects of this whole treaty system. Um, and has always been a powerful presence, usually along the lines of championing and enforcing the strictest versions of prohibition. So in this case with cannabis, it was clear that the science is starting to change the discussion, which is why a WHO review was needed in the first place. I think the, U the US was among the countries asking for more time because of the complexity of these recommendations and really played a leading role in those discussions as they, as they move forward. And I think um, ended up in a very good position, um, which was very clear and vocal about, uh, which is to remove cannabis from schedule four of the 61 convention, which basically says it's among the most dangerous drugs on the planet and it has no acknowledged medical uses, which even the US at this point was recognizing is completely absurd given the science. So I think the US played a really important role in that regard at the same time. The U.S. was very aware that 
federal policy hasn't changed. Our laws are still the same as the 1970 Controlled Substances Act with respect to cannabis. And that given that the US position was, all right, we'll remove it from schedule four, we'll vote that way, but we're gonna insist on and raise the profile of the fact that cannabis remains in schedule one of the 1961 convention, which uh, puts it under the full control array of those conventions. So the US was trying to do both things. Yes, to science on removal from Schedule 4, but also emphasize that cannabis is still a Schedule 1 substance under treaties. And I think that's highly problematic because the WHO review um, didn't actually provide evidence for keeping it in Schedule 1. And that was a much more politicized determination. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about Schedule 1 then, uh, since, you, since you mentioned it, I'm understanding your comments there. But what exactly does that mean um, for us? Uh, for next year and years to follow. Is this going to break down barriers across the world? Uh, what is it going to do to federal medical regimes that, that are out there? Um, I guess, you know, in layman's terms, is this going to have a domino effect in your opinion? Yeah. No, I think the removal from Schedule 4, which is was essentially a subset of Schedule 1 with no recognized medical utility, where the treaties act, actively discouraged member states, including the U.S., from allowing medical uses, to have that not just recommended by the WHO, but now approved by the CND is very positive news. It at long last acknowledges medical uses, and I think it will stimulate countries that have heretofore been afraid to move or to expand their medical uses in their research to do so. So I think that's very positive news, and I, and I think it's important that the US was on the right side of that based on the science. There are a number of countries that voted against a recommendation. It won very narrowly, 27 to 25 votes. So that's extremely significant. At the same time, because the WHO um, was both hampered by the rules of the treaties and unfortunately um, probably afraid of making any recommendations that would never pass in terms of say, descheduling cannabis from schedule one to a more lenient schedule two in the 61 convention, didn't go there and they implicitly recommended that cannabis stay schedule one. And it's pretty clear that the evidence, the scientific evidence doesn't support that conclusion. Nevertheless, cannabis is still in schedule one. And I think it's really important for people to realize that that's really not based on modern science. Um, this, the, the WHO review, the science doesn't make the case that cannabis is equally dangerous to other Schedule One substances, let's say heroin or cocaine. The risk and harm profile, profile isn't there. Nevertheless, they said it still belongs in Schedule One. So I think that's something that's going to need to be revisited. And for countries that are already have already moved beyond the boundaries of Schedule One, for legally regulating adult use, or for countries that are going there, like the United States. That's an extremely important issue from the point of view of the constraints that these treaties impose and what countries are going to do once they move beyond the boundaries of those, of those allowances. Right. So one of the recommendations, John, that's been really puzzling to me is 5.5, which attempted to bring CBD under uh, international control. It got little to no support in spite of the fact that CBD is permissible in many spots around the world. This was a really a head scratcher for me. Can you give us some insight into, into why this uh, received so little support from those around the world? 
Yeah, I think in general, a lot of these recommendations um, uh, didn't receive support from both sides. The sides who wanted um, there to be uh, um, a well-structured global or at least national CBD markets versus countries who wanted no part of any reform with respect to cannabis. So this one went down to a, to a landslide defeat. I think that the main reason was it actually added to the uncertainty because it's already clear from WHO's um, initial part of its review and I think long-term treaty interpretation that CBD is not subject to the controls of the treaties. Um, so why introduce a footnote that says as much um, when a footnote to exclude something is really not necessary and sort of subverts the logic of the treaties. So I think it raised a lot of issues about um, proper procedure and the role of using footnotes. So it, it caused head scratching all along the way. And unfortunately it left a lot of um, uncertainty around where CBD does stand because I think it's, it should be very clear that CBD is not under international control. Um, the question of what the thresholds are going to be um, to encourage international trade, um, I think is an open question. It's more likely to be, fine, be defined over time, I think by national regulations and gradual evolution towards thresholds that make sense, mm -hmm. or perhaps under um, through a resolution by this, the CND that tries to grapple with some of these threshold and definition things. But I think that's, even that is gonna be a difficult road. And I think it's probably best left alone from the scheduling point of view, and even from the resolution point of view in the CND, because those tend to be least common denominator operations. And it's gonna to be tough as this round of votes showed, it's gonna be tough to find something that really not just suits all the countries around the table, but actually makes sense. Right. Okay, well, so maybe this is not such a bad thing, 5.5. So thank you. For I, don't, I don't think it is. I think um, it, it may have been, it may have been well-intended, but I think it ran into all sorts of obstacles administratively, legally, in terms of treaty interpretation. And it ended up um, leaving more uncertainty and confusion because of the debate and the International Narcotics Control Board weighed in in ways that I don't think helped at all, asserting control where there is none and misconstruing what the treaty says about uh, industrial purposes, limiting them to fiber and seeds when that was meant to be just an illustrative um, point. When industrial purposes can be much broader and should be, and many member states interpret them as being CBD. So I think that's where we're left. I think national laws and, and um, regulations are going to continue to develop this and there'll be some convergence there, but I don't think it, it'll be difficult after this vote for there to be an appetite to come back and tackle it in a way that will make sense. Yeah, okay. So let's move away from the UN and I appreciate all of your insight there, um, but I'd like to ask you about Mexico because uh, the entire cannabis industry is watching very closely. Um, the country's uh, actions, it looks like they are going to legalize uh, on or before December 15th, so right around the corner. Um, and one of the things that's been on my mind is really the impact that uh, our ally and trading partners legalization is going to have on the United States. So U.S. will, in, in essence, be sandwiched between uh, two legalized trading partners and allies. Um, and just curious if you have any thoughts on how that can potentially impact cannabis reform uh, here in Washington and in the States. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a great question because I actually think the developments within the United States um, have had an impact on the Mexican debate as well. So it's a sort of symbiotic question. Um, our federalism has, um, on, you know, paradoxically, because Congress has been paralyzed on this issue for years, but the states have been able to move ahead, um, that's created what is already a gigantic market at the state level. Of course, it's fractured because of, you know, the, the different federal laws. But um, for Mexico, I think they've been looking at the United States on its states on its borders, first California, now Arizona, is saying, wow, you know, we, we need to get with this as well. Um, so I think there's already been an impact there. And then to see that Canada um, legally regulated at national level as well. But I think this will hasten the day in the United States when federal law is revised um, to legally regulate, you know, adult use or recreational in a way that either through federal decrim or some version of the States Act initially that allows states to, to um, proceed with their state level markets without the fear of federal interference. Um, from a Mexican point of view, um, it's been clear all along or ever since um, the state level legal regulation, including for medical, but especially adult use started, that the United States was out of compliance with the treaty obligations that it has historically bludgeoned other countries with. Um, and to say that in the case of cannabis, well, it's not cocaine, it's not heroin, those are really the big drugs of export and organized crime. That's not necessarily the case. First of all, cannabis is the world's most widely used drug that's controlled under these schedules and is put on par with drugs like heroin and cocaine in the conventions. So it's really important to other countries that the United States because the states have moved ahead with legalization and the federal government, both politically and as a practical matter, can't really push back on them. Other countries realize that the United States, which had been saying something different for a long, long time, is now in a different position vis-a-vis -vis these treaties. And there's big political space for other countries to reform their cannabis laws as well. Good. Well, it's an exciting time. And I think it's just another um, important piece of the puzzle as we began to look at 2021 with the new uh, president and vice president-elect who obviously she's been very supportive uh, of cannabis reform and we're excited to work uh, with the new administration, excited to work with leaders on Capitol Hill, uh, and of course to watch very closely what happens with our, our neighbors uh, to the South. So um, John, uh, any we were about at the end of our time here today, unfortunately, but any parting thoughts that you would like to share with our audience um, as as cannabis reformers across the U.S. look at 2021? Yeah, I mean, I think two main things. As countries do take these bigger steps to move beyond what the this, these UN drug treaties permit in terms of adult use, where the obligations are clear to limit to medical and scientific as well as industrial, I think countries are going to um, benefit from a collective approach to dealing with those treaty tensions, and I would say clear non-compliance issues. So that's one, that's one big point. To the extent that the United States is um, not already formally in that game, it's simply because of the fig lease of federalism. Um, the US is already out of compliance and everyone around the world knows it. So sooner or later, the US needs to cope with that. Not in a way that would you know, stop the US from moving forward with federal uh, adult use decrim or, or um, legal regulation, but to know that it's on the agenda as something that we need to do 
in conformity with international law, not turning our backs to it. And I think the other huge issue for legal regulated cannabis, whether recreational or medical, is to make sure that there is social equity and inclusion, that this is not the domain of already rich, well-heeled, well-connected people with capital already who are gonna benefit. So that decrim and a legal regulated market really need to stop punishing the people who have mostly been born the brunt of the drug war and that they be included in the benefits of these newly legal markets. To fail to do so is gonna perpetuate the criminal markets, gonna perpetuate punishment and incarceration, and it's not gonna achieve the social justice and equity goals that, are, that so many reformers would like to achieve. So I think that's a huge question mark for Mexico right now, how their new legislation shapes up. And it's also a big question, as you know, in every US state that's going this route, and it will be a question in every country. So I think um, tackling all of those issues shows that this is a process, no perfect starting point, and it's always gonna be an evolution. But I think those need to be high on the agenda because from the social justice point of view, simply to legally regulate, and but at the same time to continue with a prohibitionist approach to the small players, whether uh, distributors or growers who have already been the focus of the drug war for decades would be a real, real injustice. Yeah, critically important points, John. Thank you so much for that. And we will leave it there. I uh, really appreciate you being with us on this episode of Under the Canopy. Thank you so much. Sure. My pleasure, David.